In the church I was raised in, in Sunnyside, Washington, I remember every Sunday morning when we walked into the auditorium that the ushers handed us a bulletin, and inside the bulletin was the details of the service that morning. There was what we call an order of service. And uh, the order of service, if you're a little kid sitting there, you're looking at uh, one item at a time, things that you can cross off and give you a pretty good idea of what time the service was supposed to be over. Well, you'll notice in the bulletin, we give you that there is no order of service. And the reason is because we don't want you reading it during service time. And uh, frankly, we make it up as we go along. We don't have an order of service. No, that's not true. But uh, we don't put an order of service in the bulletin because we don't want people thinking about those things. We want them to enter into the service and just uh, respond to what takes place next. Well, in a similar way, the Bible gives us an order of service, in a sense, in terms of what's coming in the future. And the Bible gives us insights, not necessarily a chronological uh, step-by-step, action-by-action series of events that are described, but we are given some perspective relative to the second coming of Jesus Christ and what the world is going to be like as the church, the body of Christ, anticipates being taken from this world into the world to come. For example, Jesus said in Matthew 24, verse 11, many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. Timothy was told by the Apostle Paul, in the latter times some will fall away from the faith. And then again, Paul said to Timothy in his second letter, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled, They will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn their ears away from the truth. And then to the Thessalonians he wrote, Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first. One of the things that's pretty clear as the events of the church age wind down and the anticipation of Christ's return Uh, comes upon us is that apostasy, a falling away from the truth, is going to become widespread in the body of Christ. Not necessarily the people who are born again will fall away, but people in the church who know little about the Bible and claim to be Christian, but are Christian in name only, not in action, not in the way they live, not in terms of their personal relationship with Jesus Christ. There's going to be massive falling away from the truth. And the reason will be because people don't know the truth. And they won't be able to discern between what is actually from the Bible and what has been made up. And therefore, this apostasy will come upon the church. And it seems that as the second coming of Christ draws closer, it's going to become more intense. Well, this is what Jude has in mind as he writes his postcard as he writes his letter telling people in anticipation of Christ's return how to be able to spot apostasy. This morning we're going to talk about the way of the apostates. Now some sermons have to do with how we as Christians ought to live, how we ought to think. This passage of scripture is a warning passage. In fact, the entire letter is. 
It's a warning letter to the members of the body of Christ to be on the alert for apostates, people who will come into the church, verse 4, certain persons who have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for the condemnation, ungodly persons who turned the grace of our God into licentiousness, that refers to undisciplined, godless living, and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. So Jude says, I want you to be on the alert. I want you to be watchful. This morning now, we're going to look at verses 8 through 13. There's only one chapter in the book. Only one chapter. Verses 8 through 13 is our target this morning. As Jude describes the way of the apostates, he compares them with three corrupt personalities from the Old Testament. Three corrupt personalities from the Old Testament. Um... Their names are Cain, from the book of Genesis. Secondly, he uses the example of Balaam. We studied him in the book of Numbers. And Korah, whom we also studied in the, in the book of Numbers. And all three of these individuals had disastrous lives and disastrous endings. Now Jude likes to work in threes. You're going to find that as we finish the book in a couple of weeks. But he likes working in threes. You'll look at verse 2, and you'll be reminded that he requests three things of the people who read this letter. Mercy, peace, and love, that they be multiplied to the readers. Last week, we looked at those who do not, who, uh, who, uh, do not believe and were destroyed. The people who, uh, verse 5... Um, Israel, who was saved out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed and uh, because they did not believe. So we looked at the example of three groups of people. Israel, number one, the fallen angels, verse 6, and the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, verse 7. What Jude is doing is he is comparing um, what the apostates are going to look like by, by bringing alongside examples of groups of people last week and this week as he looks at individuals and draws comparisons between the two to help his readers understand what the apostate is going to look like and, and what he's going to say. Now on the people that the apostates influence, these individuals are going to produce a spiritual train wreck. These certain persons described in verse 4 are going to be a disaster to themselves and to others who are affected by their teaching. Jude verse 8 calls these people dreamers. Yet in the same way these men also by dreaming defile the flesh and reject authority and revile angelic majesties. First thing you notice here in this verse is that he, as he continues to describe them is that they're dreamers. It may mean that the things that they teach, the things that they come up with, actually are, are things that they dream up on their own, or it may be that they claim to be people who hear things from God in their dreams. They have dreams, and in those dreams there are messages from God. 
Now it seems like in the circles I run, not necessarily in this church, but I run into people all of the time who've had dreams and God has spoken to them, they say, clearly in their dreams. Well, I will tell you that my belief is that dreams are pretty much a thing of the past. God has spoken in dreams in the past. There were times that he wanted to reveal his will, but the Bible wasn't completed, and so he would speak on occasion through dreams. But I believe that time has largely passed because the canon is completed, and God has given us all that he wants us to know in the Bible. And we are to shape and mold our lives in light of what he has said. Now that does not mean that God can't speak through dreams. He can. But it does mean that every time you hear a person claim to have had a dream, a message from God, then you always take that dream and compare it and match it with what the Word of God says. And you discern whether it's a true dream from God or whether it's something that someone has made up. So Jude calls these individuals dreamers. And um, it's important for us, in light of that, to weigh and evaluate everything we hear, even in the body of Christ, in light of the revealed truth that's been given. Now verse 8 goes on to tell us that they have three patterns of conduct. They are dreamers with three patterns of conduct. Number one, they defiled the flesh. In other words, they feel a complete freedom to indulge themselves in any and every form of sensual pleasure. They are an authority unto themselves, and they pretty much do what they want. They defile the flesh. Secondly, they reject authority. They will tell you that they answer to no one but God. Anytime you you hear an individual speak in the name of Jesus Christ, And when you ask yourself the question, who is this person accountable to? If the message that you receive is that he is accountable to no human institution, that he's accountable directly to to God, then you need to be very, very concerned about what this person is and what he is saying. Because it's pretty clear that in the Bible, God makes us accountable to other human beings, other brothers and sisters in Christ. And when a person is speaking on his own and has no sense of accountability to, everyone out, to anyone else, you will find that that individual has a tendency to be bizarre in terms of his teaching and his practice. Always be suspicious when the individual is not accountable to someone or to a group of people, a a group of believers. So the first thing you will notice, these dreamers defile the flesh. Secondly, they reject authority. And thirdly, they revile angelic majesties. They revile angelic majesties. Now, I'll be honest with you, I'm not sure what that means, But I can tell you in light of verse 10 where he says, But these men revile the things which they do not understand. 
makes it clear to me that the reviling angelic majesties would seem to indicate in light of the expression that there is divine order in angelic circles in the world of angels. God has established divine order and uh, these dreamers who do not understand this uh, world of the unseen spirits where angels dwell, in light of the fact they don't know, they don't understand, they make up all kinds of garbage. So Jude says they defile the flesh, secondly, reject authority, and third, revile or blaspheme angelic majesties. Then he goes on to give an example, verse 9. But Michael the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. What's he talking about there? Answer, I'm not sure fact of the matter is we don't have a lot of detail about the burial of Moses except to say that we know that Mount, uh, Moses went up on Mount Nebo toward the well at the end of his life went up on Mount Nebo God gave him the opportunity from that perspective to look at the promised land God told Moses he wasn't going to go into the promised land we learned that in our study of the book of Numbers and the reason was because Moses was commanded to speak to the rock and the rock would produce water but Moses in his anger and frustration struck the, ro uh, the rock with his rod and the water came forth you'll remember the story but God said to Moses because you've disobeyed me you're not going into the promised land so Moses was taken up on Mount Nebo, allowed to see the land, but not allowed to go into the land. And just a couple of verses after that, it says that Moses breathed his last and God buried him. And it says that no one knows where Moses was buried. Why do you think that's so? Well, we don't know, but our suspicion is that people have a tendency to venerate people from the past, particularly notable people from the Old Testament. If we had Moses' bones, believe me, they'd be worshipped. So God buried him. Now it says that there was a contest between Michael the archangel who was the protector of God's people in the Old Testament. There was a contest between him and the devil. Apparently the devil wanted the body of Moses. We don't know why. But he wanted the body of Moses, and rather than Michael rebuking the devil, he turned the whole matter over to the Lord and trusted the matter to God, and he took care of it. That's all we know. So verse 9 becomes an illustration of reviling angelic majesties. And... Uh, Michael simply turned the matter over to the Lord, which brings us then to verse 10. But these men reviled the things which they do not understand. Again, he's talking about apostates, false teachers. They revile the things, they blaspheme the things they do not understand, and the things which they know by instinct, like unreasoning animals, by these things they are destroyed. So, verse 10 is speaking to the subject of blaspheming things they do not comprehend and things that which they know by instinct they know like reasoning animals but things which are ultimately going to be destroyed 
Verse 11, Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain, and, and for pay they have rushed headlong into the air of Balaam and perished in the rebellion of Korah. Here's our first personality. Here's the first person that we call to your attention. His name is Cain. Cain is an illustration, verse 8, of a man who defiled the flesh. His conduct was evil. He brought his, he brought his sacrifice to the Lord, which was fruits and vegetables. His sacrifice was rejected. Cain's sacrifice, according to the book of Genesis, an animal sacrifice was accepted by God and rather than uh, accepting God's reproof which Cain received and told him what he needed to do in order to present a presentable sacrifice to God Cain got angry and killed his brother in the, in the book of first John chapter 3 verse 11 it says for this is the message which you've heard from the beginning that we should love one another not as Cain, who was, of the, who was of the devil, one who slew his brother, and for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. You see, Cain couldn't tolerate the idea that, that Abel, his brother's sacrifice was acceptable and his was not. And rather than making the, the, uh, the necessary changes in his sacrifice, he allowed anger to control him, and he killed his brother. Going the way of Cain, according to Jesus, is the broad way that leads to destruction. The way of Cain is religion that offers the fruit of our works to God. It's the way that rejects the, um, the faith in a substitutionary death of an innocent life. It's being told that you've done the wrong thing, and rather than correcting what you've done, being angry and taking matters into your own hands. The way of Cain is a defilement of the flesh. We're introduced to Balaam number 2, verse 11. They have rushed for profit into Balaam's error. Balaam illustrates verse 8 the reviling of angelic majesties. If you'll turn over to 2 Peter chapter 2, which by the way is a companion passage to the book of Jude, 2 Peter chapter 2, I want to call your attention to verse 15. Because Peter here, talking about the same thing, says in verse 15, forsaking the right way, they have gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness, but he received a rebuke for his own transgression, for a mute donkey, speaking with the voice of a man, restrained the madness of the prophet. The way of Balaam. The Bible tells us in the book of Numbers that Balaam was on his way to rebuke God's people. He was contracted by King Balak, king of Moab. And you'll remember in our account, in, uh, in our study of the book of Numbers, that Balaam was paid to rebuke God's people because Balak was concerned at the way Israel had settled in his territory, in his land, and there were so many of them, he wanted to go up against them and fight against them, but he wanted them cursed first. Balaam was the best in the business. 
So Balaam was contracted to curse God's people, but you'll remember in our story in the book of uh, Numbers that every time Balaam opened his mouth to curse the people, a blessing came out. And rather than cursing the people, he blessed the people time and time again. Balak became frustrated and Balaam went home. But before he went home, he gave Balak a clue as to how he could... Uh, get an advantage over God's people and that was to invite them to a feast which he did and Israel the people of God entered into a pagan feast and God judged the people but the driving force in Balaam's life was money and the way of Balaam is doing ministry motivated by money and just like Judas who did what he did motivated by money being driven by money binds us to the error of gaining the whole world at the cost of our own souls. There are people today in the body of Christ who are driven by money so much that it affects their judgment. And they're unable to discern the difference between right and wrong. And during the time of the apostates, these personalities who will come into the church secretly and unnoticed, one of the evidences of, of uh, their likeness to apostate will be in that they follow the way of Balaam. So Cain is the first model given in verses 10 and 11. Balaam is the second model given in verse 11. Korah is the third given in verse 11. They have perished in the rebellion of Korah. Or as the text says, Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain, and for pay they have rushed headlong into the air of Balaam, and third, perished in the rebellion of Korah. You remember Korah. He was a religious leader, a cousin of Moses, a Levite who led a 250-member uh, rebellious coalition of influential people against God's appointed leaders, Moses and Aaron. They didn't like the way things were going. They wanted to take matters into their own hand. And you'll remember in that story that God brought judgment against them by opening the ground and swallowing Korah and all of his possessions and all of his family. A dramatic demonstration of how God feels about people who rise up against God-ordained authority. He takes it very per personally. So Cousin Korah's apostate religion was empty and not worth dying for because apostate Korah rose up against God-ordained leadership. We need to be careful. And I will tell you that I include myself in this because politically, I'm really on edge these days. Politically speaking, I'm not real happy with what's happening in Washington, D.C., and I know that there are many people here who are the same. But I have to ask myself the question, who placed this per these people in positions and offices? And your answer would be, well, the majority did last election. That's true. But the question I need to ask, in light of what I understand of the sovereignty of God, who ultimately placed these individuals in the position of authority? And the answer is, 
God. God. And there's a sense in which the way I respond to these personalities, even if I don't like their policies, the way I respond to them is a way that I am to some degree responding to God. I don't like the policies. Many of them I do not like. I don't have to like them. But I need to pray for the persons in the offices. And I need to pray for their success. And I need to pray that God will open their eyes to the truth as revealed in the scriptures and that they would seek wise biblical counseling before they make policy decisions. In the meantime, I'm like David Barton. I'm going to do everything I can to see them removed from their position. But I'm not going to be a politician. I have more important things to address my attention to relative to the second coming of Jesus Christ. So Korah reminds me that I need to be careful about rejecting authority. Authority that's been placed there by God. Authority that I am accountable to. Authority that I am to pray for even if I don't like the policies and the decisions that are being made. Well, we're told then in verse 12, these, <clears throat> these are the men who are hidden reefs in your love feast when they feast with you without fear. That's an interesting observation. Again, remember, these individuals, certain ones, verse 4, are the ones who've crept in unnoticed. These individuals are those who beforehand are marked out for condemnation and they are persons who turn the grace of God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. But they're not obvious when they, when they first walk through the doors of the church. They are people who come to our love feasts. And in our perspective, that means communion services. Love Feast is a part of our communion service here at Grace Brethren. It's a meal that we share together, a symbolic meal. But it probably also refers to any dinner in the church where the body of Christ gathers together for the purpose of fellowship and interacting with each other in the context of love. These individuals will be there. And they will enter into the discussion and they're not nervous about their motives, even though their motives are, 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 uh, are complicated. They sit there and, co and communicate without fear, we are told. They join in. They participate. But Jude wants us to know they are dangerous. They are caring for themselves. Clouds without water. Carried along by winds autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted. In this passage, Jude borrows five applications from nature to help the, the believer understand the apostate who will enter into the church unnoticed. First of all, verse 12, they are caring for themselves or they are selfish. Caring for themselves. I looked up that word caring and I found that it's the word that's usually translated shepherding. And shepherding refers to caring for a person as a shepherd. 
It means feeding, watering, protecting, and tending the flock. This is the goal of born-again people in the body of Christ to minister to one another. And one of the things we've done in our congregation is started shepherding groups. We call them shepherding groups. And it's motivated by the belief that in this context this morning, it's difficult for us to shepherd one another. But in smaller groups of uh, 10 to 12, 15 people, it is much easier to get to know individuals as we study God's Word together and interact with one another and we share testimonies with each other and also prayer requests. And in that way, we minister to each other. We shepherd each other. These individuals will be obvious in that they shepherd themselves. They isolate themselves from these kinds of groups because they're driven by they're only driven by what's in their personal best interest. They have little or no interest to give anything to anyone else. Particularly as it deals with spiritual feeding, watering and protecting. These shepherding groups are a part of the of the ministry of the body of Christ and giving us opportunity to minister one to another but the apostate will not have that interest he's only interested in his own needs years ago I was raised in the family of Robert and Martha McIntosh my father raised four boys and uh, he was a funeral director but he wanted us to learn responsibility so he bought a bunch of pigs and he put these pigs in our backyard and at one time there were scores of pigs and we were we were going to the market all the time selling pigs and uh, reproducing pigs but he wanted us to learn responsibility and and in the family of four boys I was assigned to feed and water the pigs now feeding was not a big deal because all I had to do was take grain sacks and dump them in these automatic feeders and frankly I didn't need to worry about feeding them because that feed in the automatic feeder would last three or four days but watering was another thing and when I watered the pigs I had to take the watering trough out of the mud and the mire that these pigs had created and I had to clean the mud out of the watering trough and then put fresh clean water in the trough for them to drink that was a hassle and watering the pigs kept me from doing a lot of important things that I needed to do with my friends like playing ball and 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 uh, and, and just hanging out together one day my father called me to the pig pen said how long has it been since you fed and watered these pigs I said I did it this morning I have to tell you folks I lied I was in junior high maybe early years of high school my dad said to me I want you to water them right now I went into the pig pen and rather than mud in the trough as normally was there it, it was dry dust I turned the watering trough over, emptied the dust, cleaned it out as best I could, but the pigs were fighting me. They were fighting for the hose that was dispensing the water. They were, they were shrieking at each other 
biting each other for the water. And finally, I put the hose into the watering trough and filled the trough up, but the animals were fighting to get water. Folks, I will tell you, I got one of the meanest spankings of my life. I didn't think my dad was going to quit pounding on me. Why? Well, he was furious that these animals were penned up and the person responsible for the feeding and the watering was negligent. And my dad couldn't stand to have animals suffer while the person responsible was playing, goofing off, and doing other things that he thought was important. I learned a lesson of responsibility. And the lesson was this. I do not sit down and eat and drink until the animals have been fed and watered. In a similar way in the body of Christ, I am an under-shepherd. I am not the shepherd. I am an under-shepherd. And it means that on Sunday morning, when the, when the congregation comes together, it is my responsibility to shepherd the flock, to feed the flock and water the flock. The values of responsibility in that area were given to me by my father, who on one occasion beat them into me until I understood it. I understand it today. I don't take care of myself until the body of Christ has been taken care of spiritually, fed and watered. God reprimanded his shepherds in the Old Testament in the days of Ezekiel. In the days of Ezekiel, he brought it to the attention of the prophet that God was not pleased with the way his sheep, his people, were being cared for. Ezekiel 34, verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, prophesy and say to those shepherds, Thus says the Lord God, Woe, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flock? You eat the fat and clothe yourself with the wool. You slaughter the fat sheep without feeding the flock. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely because my flock has become a prey, my flock has even become food for all the beasts of the field for lack of a shepherd. And my shepherds did not search for my flock, but rather the shepherds fed themselves and did not feed my flock. Therefore, you shepherds, Hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against the shepherds, and I will demand my sheep from them and make them cease from feeding sheep. So the shepherds will not feed themselves anymore, but I will deliver my flock from their mouth so that they will not be food for them. What an indictment against leadership, spiritual leadership. What an indictment against people who have responsibility to feed and minister to the flock of God. Well, I'm out of time, and I got a bunch more to say.
but I'm going to wait till next week. It's important for us to understand that we come to the body of Christ not to shepherd ourselves, but to shepherd each other. Caring for the body of Christ is our responsibility mutually one toward the other. What you get on Sunday morning is only part of the meal. What you provide for each other during the week in shepherding groups is critical to the growth and development of shepherds and sheep. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, a lamp, a light into our uh, pathway, and a lamp into our feet. It shows us the way. It helps us understand. It helps us see the things that we cannot see in and of ourselves. We thank you for the things that you communicate to us relative to the things consistent with latter days and the return of Jesus Christ. We understand that apostasy is going to become more and more intense as the truth is going to be questioned even in the body of Christ. And people are going to doubt whether or not we can know anything with absolute truth. Lord, we pray that you would protect the body of Christ here, that you would protect all of us sheep who are in need of truth, who need to be reminded that there is absolute truth that has been revealed by God and that we will one day be held accountable for what he has revealed. We live in a world that questions truth and it's invaded the church. And it's possible even to come to this church by people who sneak in unnoticed but who have mixed motives, dreamers, people who defile the flesh, reject authority, and revile angelic majesties. Help us to be on the alert. Help us to be sober, as Peter has warned us, because the adversary, like a roaring lion, walks among us seeking whom he may devour. Help us, Lord, not to be afraid or anxious. Help us, Lord, not to be overly concerned, but be on the alert and to be focused on the truth so that when the false appears, we're discerning enough to know the difference between false teaching and true teaching. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together on our prayer for the week from Psalm 19, verse 14. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. God bless you this week.